0: Welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis and Practice is the podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode, will take a deep dive into the latest work published in Behavior Analysis and Practice, the journal, by interviewing the paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of each paper, and ask the questions you wish you could ask the authors after reading the paper. Hello everyone and welcome back. I'm your host, Dr. Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Solvay Regina University. And we are officially kicking off season three of BAPCAST. And we've got a great lineup that I'm excited to share with you. Our first guest this season, are Drs. Drew Bola and Amy Evans, who are here to talk about two papers really. The first is an introduction to a special issue published in behavior analysis and practice focused on direct instruction and precision teaching. And the second paper is a paper that Amy and Drew wrote together called The Precision Teaching System, A Synthesized Definition, Concept Analysis, and Process. Dr. Bola earned his bachelor's degree from St. Joseph's University in psychology with a minor in autism studies. Upon graduating, he completed his master's and doctoral degrees in behavior analysis from Western Michigan University and subsequently became a board-certified behavior analyst in 2014. He is currently an assistant professor of psychology and program coordinator for behavior analysis programs at Georgia Southern University's Armstrong campus. Drew is also a consultant for Morningside Teachers Academy, where he helps coordinate and run the Summer Institute to teach individuals all over the world about the Morningside model of generative instruction. Drew has worked with a variety of organizations and applied behavior analysis to many, many important issues. He is currently a board member for the Standard Acceleration Society and has recently served as the lead guest editor for the special issue in behavior analysis and practice on precision teaching, along with Doctors Abigail Colkin and Mary Sawyer. In his spare time, Drew can be spotted on the beach and in the ocean, either swimming or or paddling, giving guided kayak and paddleboard tours, reading, trying his hardest at surfing, traveling, or spending time with his pup, Kobe. Amy Evans is a board-certified behavior analyst who holds a master's degree in special education from the Pennsylvania State University and a bachelor's degree in psychology from the University of Nevada, Reno. Amy is a founding partner of Octave Innovation, which provides training to organizations and individuals in the areas of precision teaching, ascent based learning, and instructional design. After working in private learning centers, public school classrooms, and home based programs since 2008, Amy shifted her focus to dissemination and training in 2015. Since then, She's created playbooks, resource guides, and dozens of high-quality online professional development courses. She has contributed to books and research related to the implementation of precision teaching, and she has presented workshops and symposia at local, national, and international conferences. Amy's proudest accomplishment thus far has been transitioning over 40 small to mid-sized organizations to precision teaching and digital standard acceleration charting. Amy believes these contributions would not be possible without a strong foothold in clinical practice and continues to serve children and families all over the US and Canada as a remote tutor and educational consultant. Amy is a world traveler, but currently calls Denver, Colorado her home. I had a great time interviewing Drew and Amy, and I think you're really gonna enjoy what they have to say. So without further ado, here is my interview with Drew Bola and Amy Evans. Hello, Drew and Amy, and welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice the Podcast.
1: Hey, Hey, Cody, nice to be here. Hey, thanks for having us.
0: I'm excited to have you both on this show today to talk about precision teaching. Before we jump into the topic, we always love to hear a little bit about our guests. So would you mind giving us a little introduction about yourself, what your current role is and, and what led you to be interested in precision teaching?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll start off first. My name is uh, Dr. Andrew Bulla, but I go by Drew. Um, I am an assistant professor at Georgia Southern University, who just recently went up for tenure, so hopefully by the time people are listening to this, though I can say I'm an associate uh, professor, but I also oversee our um, applied behavior analysis and behavior analysis programs at the undergraduate and graduate level. Um, I'm also a board member for the Standard Acceleration Society, and I've conducted and published research in the areas of precision teaching, education, and more recently, animal training and welfare using the standard acceleration chart to make better decisions in our animal training, um, as well as assess the welfare of animals in managed care facilities. I got into precision teaching by, you know, doing some coursework at Western Michigan University under the advisement of Dr. Jessica Frieder. And then I spent some time over at Morningside to which um, after doing Morningside Summer School Institute, I was offered a position to help with their Summer School Institute. And now I am running the Summer School Institute with my colleagues, Dr. Kent Johnson, as well as Deb Brown, Andrew Keita, and uh, uh, Chris Melro, and a variety of people who have left a handprint on my professional heart and my, my non-professional heart as well. So I feel very fortunate to have gotten into this field of precision teaching, which is just such a kind and welcoming field that I feel like I've been part of this family for quite some time.
0: Thanks, Drew, and good luck on your, your tenure application. I'm sure that's going to go well. I hope so. Amy? <laughs>
1: So I'm Amy Evans, and I have been a precision teacher for my entire career in the field. Um, got into it in Nevada when I was at UNR as an undergrad, started learning at Fit Learning, and that was my first job in the field. And then I, you know, dabbled in um, working in autism and working in a special education setting. I've been kind of chasing that dragon ever since. So I, you uh, Moved across the country to work with Dr. Rick Kubina at Penn State and that's where I did my master's in special education and um, ever since then I've kind of had my own tutoring business uh, that I've taken around the world with me and I've worked with Elizabeth Houghton um, and Uh, Richard McManus, (laughs) um, and worked under Rick Kubina for several years, getting started with Chartlytics, which is now owned by um, Central Reach, Precision X. Um, And I've had the opportunity to Kind of figure out precision teaching across all of these different settings. I went to Morningside Summer School Institute that Drew now runs, but we didn't meet there. Um, loved that, and have just sort of really enjoyed getting to know this field and learning as a practitioner, and now as a trainer. So since I've been out on out on the conference. Uh, circuit for so many years giving workshops and presentations and just sort of like it was my job to get the word out about precision teaching. So this has been really fun for me um, to bring people into the field and that's kind of my role. So these days I still got my tutoring gig and I'm working with Liz LaFever. We just founded Octave Innovation and we do a training for organizations and individuals who want to learn how to implement precision teaching, no matter what level they're at. So that's been a really fun project. And this, um, this experience working with Drew has been really fun as well.
0: Amy, out of curiosity, what came first in terms of the chicken, the egg scenario for you and precision teaching? Were you interested in behavior analysis or, or sort of teaching and then you got into precision teaching or how did that happen?
1: I would say that is a really funny, really convoluted story. Um, I was a psychology major getting my undergrad and I was in Seattle at a private school. I ran out of money, had to move home, went to UNR and ended up at some um political event that my parents dragged me to I met somebody named Tuna who hangs out at the at Steve Hayes lab I met Dr. Nick Barrons there and all of a sudden I was I was working under Nick as his research assistant for his dissertation and so we would have meetings at Fit Learning but I never actually went back there to see what they were doing. I was just like, there's kids walking in and out. They look happy. Um, and one day Kim and Nick came up to me. They were like, do you want to work here? <laughs> and um, and I got to, I got to get started there. So I got really interested in precision teaching and I learned about behavior analysis through that experience. Um, and then, then I dug into behavior analysis. I took some courses at UNR before my master's program and continued to to pursue my BCBA after that. So really crazy, ridiculous story of how I got into it and kind of which came first. I have a hard time um, sometimes because I'm such a precision teacher and I happen to also be a behavior analyst. That's kind of how I identify. It can be difficult because I don't speak the lingo sometimes of the VB map is something I'm not familiar with. And I fi- I find little things like that be, to be really interesting. I have to do some pausing to translate, to understand, um, but the conceptual knowledge is all there. And once we get going, I can, usually, um, I, can, I can play both roles.
0: Drew, not to make you have to follow that story, but now I'm kind of curious about your introduction to precision teaching? Were you on the behavior analysis track first or or how did that happen?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a harder harder sell than Amy's, but um, I was in my master's program at Western Michigan University. And my very first course that I took was psychology in the schools taught by Jessica Frieder. And in that, it was more of an overview of applications of behavior analysis to education and schooling. So we had a week Um, unit on precision teaching and using the standard acceleration chart and um, from there I was very interested but I wasn't doing it so much in my applied practice. It wasn't until I was afforded the opportunity to design and teach a new course at Western which was educational psychology at the undergraduate level that I said, I want to do this precision teaching stuff. So I incorporated frequency building activities within the course and in which students were taking data on a timings chart and transferring it to a daily chart and they could see their own learning come to life Um, with this. Now, I didn't have the instructional design knowledge that I had now, so I would do things a little bit differently, but it was that, that first launch of getting dirty with the data collection and just having students see that when their dots go up, it means that they're learning and that when they came to class, they didn't have to study so much outside of class because they were in class practicing, which made a really happy learner. So from there, I was super interested in attending Morningside Academies summer school institute to learn how to do this with um, children in an educational setting. So I went there, fell in love with the methodology, fell in love with the um, approach that was taken, which was child-led, you know, following the child's data, bringing the child into their own learning, And I brought that back to one of our practicum sites at the university in which we did a small scale replication of the Morningside model in one of our autism spectrum disorders classrooms. So I really got to see the application then applied to education with um, autistic learners, which was a, a big deal for me. And then from there, I just couldn't get enough. And I just started reading and reaching out to individuals and somehow people kept taking chances on me and passing along this information. I feel really fortunate to be in a spot now where I'm seen as a leader, which is crazy to me, um, a leader in our field of standard acceleration charting as a whole, but also applications um, to precision teaching, which is the article that Amy and I wrote with Andrew Keita. So not as, not as sexy as a story as Amy's, you know, going to this political event and going to get some, some hangout time with Steve Hayes, but Um, Still a meaningful story for me.
0: Definitely. Now, what brought you two together to focus on this project specifically?
2: So um, it actually stemmed from the special issue in general. And I've worked with Amy mostly on a personal level before this paper. Amy and I would go to conferences. We would hang out. We would talk through things, but never so much professionally. And when I had the opportunity to lead this special issue, uh, we wanted to have an invited paper of what is precision teaching, and I couldn't think of anyone better than Amy to to really spearhead this. Um, so I reached out to Amy and said, please, 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 will you do this for us? And she very graciously agreed to take a lead on this article, which I think is going to make some good waves in our field. Um, Amy, I don't know if you have anything else you'd like to add <laughs> to that.
1: No, I think. um, Thank you, Drew. I was really excited to be asked to do this just because I have so many ideas about this, obviously. Um, But our, you know, our professional relationship goes back to that presentation you gave at ABAI and I went up to you and I was I just loved your presentation so much. I was like, this guy is cool and smart and makes it all work. And so I went up to you and tapped you on the shoulder and said, come on our, on our webinar. And so that was kind of how we got started, but that was the last thing we did together. And it was years ago.
2: And I do actually, I remember that now because it's funny, Cody, because Amy handed me her business card and her official title was chart ninja. (laughs) I was like, I don't know what this is, but I love
0: it. (laughs) That's awesome. So, Drew, you brought up the special issue, and I think that's a great segue into my first question, which is ultimately this this interview is going to focus primarily on the article that you and Amy wrote together titled The Precision Teaching System, a, a Synthesized Definition, Concept, Analysis, and Process. But as you said, it's part of a larger special issue. And for the a few episodes of Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast, we're going to be hitting on a few articles within this special issue. And so would you mind introducing us to this special issue? What was the scope? What was the hope of, of what you were trying to accomplish there? Absolutely.
2: So this was actually a passion project that stemmed from my role as the Vice President of Scientific and Academic Relations for the Standard Acceleration Society. And within that role, we were charged with the dissemination of scientific literature regarding the Standard Acceleration Chart and precision teaching. So while at a conference at ABAI, me and Dr. Mary Sawyer, uh, who were working together in this role for the Standard Acceleration Society, went out of our way to meet with different journal editors uh, to talk about what types of things they were looking for to publish standard acceleration charts in their their journals. And just by chance, we met with Jonathan Tarbox, Dr. Jonathan Tarbox, and said, this is, you know, we're looking to do this um, to get more charts in publications. What should we do? And he recommended a special issue saying that this would be a really good catalyst for future publications um, in the, the journal. And at the time he was editor in chief of uh, behavior analysis and practice, which now Dr. Stephanie Peterson is. And he really encouraged us to pursue this. And initially um, I kind of had a little bit of an imposter syndrome. when I said, we can find someone who's been in the field for a while to, to lead this. And he was very kind in saying that, that I had this energy and Mary was on the meeting as well. And that we had this energy that he knew that this Special issue would be, would get done under our advisement because of the passion that we had. So we wrote up a proposal and we wanted to bring in some of the history and legacy of precision teaching as well to help with this. So we invited Dr. Abigail Calkin, who is just one of the most wonderful and educated people of the chart in the history of the standard acceleration chart and precision teaching, because we wanted to keep that legacy of where we came from alive. And that's a big mission within, I think, our little community of charters to always look back to the legacy of how we got to where we are. So uh, Abigail agreed to serve as a guest editor and they said, we nominate you to be the lead guest editor, Drew. And it kind of led us to this really remarkable special issue, which, Honestly, precision teaching has a history of special issues and sections within a variety of journals, Um, stemming back to it was a journal from the Council of Exceptional Children put out called Teaching Exceptional Children, where in the 70s, I think, is one of the first special issues of um, precision teaching. And this was an education journal. This wasn't a behavior analytic journal. And they had such a cool approach to doing special issues. They had students as authors. They had teachers that were delivering these interventions as authors. So it wasn't so much academics doing these. We had pictures of the children and not we, I wasn't born, I wasn't alive in the 70s. I mean, I'm I'm not young, but I'm not born in the 70s. Um, There were pictures of the students themselves holding up their charts in the journals, their actual names. And It was something that showed that these students were just as much a part of the learning as the teachers and the researchers were. So from there, there was an additional special issue, I believe in the same journal, the European Journal of Behavior Analysis had a special issue, Behavior Developmental uh, Bulletin uh, had a special section. And we started to see that about roughly every 10 years, one of these special sections or issues comes out. And we kind of followed up in those those footsteps um, of, producing another special issue. Now we wanted to take the mission that this wasn't just a special issue on precision teaching, which is what we titled it, but we wanted to broaden the scope to be a special section on applications of the standard acceleration chart outside of just precision teaching. So within this special section, you'll see that there are areas of precision teaching, you'll see that there are areas in physical management, in dance instruction, in a variety of different areas outside of just what one may think is doing timings on math facts and and charting it on a daily chart to make decisions. We tried to really show a broad scope of um, what you can do with the standard acceleration chart. So I'm really proud of the work that is done in this special uh, section, and I cannot thank enough doctors Mary Sawyer and Abigail Caulkin, because this would not be alive without them, and all the reviewers who agreed to review these papers um, for the the special section. And which I, I think the last point I want to hit on this is that we we try to keep some of that that history and legacy alive of you know, including student authors and the individuals who are doing these interventions. So you'll see that there are a variety of undergraduate and master's level students that are writing these papers because they did the work and it's their voice being heard and and shown. And we have practitioners that are publishing paper about what they're doing in the field, right? So we have tutorial papers on, well, this is some things that we found useful in our applied practice and let's, let's talk about this and let's share it with others. So I think that we kept some of that legacy alive of uh, bringing in some of the students and the teachers into this issue as well.
0: Thank you for that explanation. It's an excellent special issue. We try to cover a few papers from the special issue within the podcast, which will be coming out uh, later. But I do recommend that any listener interested in the topic, go to the journal, check it out and, and read through some of those papers. A lot of variety of different topics, really exciting stuff. So thank you for your work on that. To switch gears a little bit and to focus on sort of the primary paper we're here to talk about, again, the precision teaching system, a synthesized definition, concept analysis, and process primarily focuses on defining precision teaching. And you sort of explain why you have to come to a potentially new or sort of revised definition. And so I'll hand things over to you both to sort of talk about what the overall goal for this paper was and and what you all sort of did.
1: So I will start off by talking about kind of the need to define precision teaching. Um, As you heard Drew just say, there's precision teaching that people tend to equate with, doing timings, charting on the daily chart, making decisions. And that's kind of the thing that people are familiar with when it comes to precision teaching. But there's also a ton of other stuff that you can do with the tool that is the standard acceleration chart. And we're having a bit of a identity crisis, I would say, in the field, trying to figure out we have so much stuff and some of it comes, it all comes from using the standard acceleration chart. But some of the people that come to our conference or join our society, are folks who are looking at all kinds of different things on the standard acceleration chart. And then there's these people who are, you know, a lot like me, the tutors who are teaching academic skills, running timings, you know, the very, the very straightforward, this is what precision teaching is all about kind of stuff. and as um as i was out in the world teaching people about precision teaching talking about the chart a lot of what what we were hearing and i think drew your experience has, was similar when we got together to talk about this was people come up to me especially in the behavior analysis realm because that's who i interact with the most as a you know as a presenter and as a trainer people in the aba field are are kind of influenced in a way that they're they're coming to precision teaching thinking that it's all about fluency and that it's all about timings. And so bridging the gap between fluency and timings and what they might be doing right now, which is discrete trial teaching and you know, measuring things throughout an entire day and then trying to make decisions about how to decrease or decelerate behavior. There were so many bits of, well, how does that connect to what I think of as precision teaching? And so what I ended up having to do was constantly have that conversation about, actually, precision teaching is really just using the standard acceleration chart to make decisions. And you can measure any human behavior, any animal behavior, um, pretty much any natural phenomenon on the standard acceleration chart or some, some version of the standard acceleration chart as you've seen, like the some other data that um, are kind of outside of the behavioral realm can end up on something that looks like an SCC. But that answer would kind of blow people's minds. And it it felt really important to just start by saying very clearly what precision teaching is and make sure that people know what it isn't or what's a part of precision teaching or what's a part of, it's been a part of the field of precision teaching, but that doesn't mean it's what precision teaching is all about. So one of the examples of that is the notion of a one minute timing was, that was a big discovery in our field in the 70s or 80s. I can't remember exactly when it was, but it was kind of this switch where, um, and and Drew might actually know the the exact uh, reference I'm talking about, but it was kind of a switch to, let's see if we can measure those same behaviors in a one minute timing and see what happens. And they found that, hey, we can move behavior and we can change behavior and we can see learning occurring even if we're just doing one minute a day of measurement or of practice of something. And so because of that legacy, we love our legacy, but we also have to remember that so many other things have happened since then. Um, So it's not just one minute timings, but that's what people are exposed to. So there's just so many little nuances to cover.
0: You you described a lot of the nuances to precision teaching and sort of alluded to a lot of some, some misunderstandings or misnomers about the system. And we'll kind of unpack each of those as we go. But, and maybe I'm jumping ahead, but when you started talking, you mentioned sort of this relationship between precision teaching and the standard acceleration chart. And I think that oftentimes those are synonymous, like they mean the same thing to, to some folks. But it sounds like you're saying not necessarily. There are people who are using standard acceleration chart for things other than precision teaching. Yes, precision teaching relies on the standard acceleration chart, but perhaps there's maybe like a Venn diagram like relationship. Am I understanding that correctly?
1: Right. I think the field of precision teaching became the umbrella term for any use of the standard acceleration chart, but that doesn't sound right when what people are doing with the chart isn't actually teaching. So that was the big question, I think, that we went into with this to answer. Drudy, do, do you have anything else on that one?
2: Yeah. And I just to echo those comments, you can't have precision teaching without the standard acceleration chart, but you can use the standard acceleration chart without the application to teaching and educating learners. And so I think that was the catalyst where we were seeing these things like um, Dr. Martin Levy doing surgical training uh, using uh, the standard acceleration chart. We had uh, students got born doing the COVID-19 and standard acceleration charts that weren't really precision teaching, right? Um, and when Og originally was describing precision teaching, he really wanted to see the word precision as an adjective for different areas, such as precision social work, precision marketing, precision um, nursing, and the precision piece just specifying that you're in these fields using the standard acceleration chart. And as Amy said, it kind of shifted and part of this may be because precision teaching was listed on the task list, but it became this idea of any use of the standard acceleration chart is, is precision teaching. And that's, that's not the case. And we found ourselves talking about this, as Amy said, like conference after conference after conference saying, no, it's not the same thing. So that's why we saw the importance of having a paper that really specified what precision teaching is. And I love what Amy said, but also showing what it is not. And I think that that's where the power of this paper comes from.
0: I agree. When I was reading this paper, I was reflecting back on the end of my master's degree and, and preparing for the BCBA exam. And through my master's degree, I, I really wasn't exposed to precision teaching, so I was trying to just kind of get an understanding of it from literature and looking for papers or, or books that sort of provided a synthesized or brief explanation of what precision teaching is and isn't just to get myself oriented to it and as I started reading your paper I was like oh, I wish this had existed uh, when I was when I was in that situation but I'm also very excited that it exists now because I have many students who, who may not be in settings where they're necessarily using precision teaching but this is a great resource for so I'm excited about that. When you were looking at the existing definitions and the fact that they were a little fuzzy and then that was leading to some, some confusion within the field and I'm sure beyond the field as to what precision teaching really constitutes, you decided to take on the task of coming up with a, a synthesized definition of what precision teaching is. Can you talk about the steps you took to come to a, a definition?
2: Yeah, um, I'll, I'll take this one and kind of talk about why we took the approach of a concept analysis for doing the definition. So this is really based in instructional design literature and mostly from the team in Markle and Tennyson camp of identifying concepts, where oftentimes when people talk about what a concept is, they, they say, OK, it's a definition. And they list the definition and they might give it an example and say, well, that's it. And if you look at a lot of textbooks that purport to be conceptual, you'll see that they're lacking those pieces of being conceptual in general. So we wanted to take the, the, the procedures of and that are in instructional design and apply it to really firm up this concept of what precision is and is not. So the way that we did this is we scoured the literature and we looked at common definitions of precision teaching. So we said, well, what are the experts? What are the people who just made these discoveries saying? And we saw some some common threads throughout there. So we looked at the common threads, and from there, we engaged in a concept analysis in which we identified what are the critical features that make precision teaching precision teaching. And with that, what we found or the process of this will show that if any of those critical features that are listed are missing, then it no longer is precision teaching. So that's why we use the term critical features, or as Joe Lang refers to them as must-have features, is that they have to have all of these things to be precision teaching. So we use these definitions as a guide to get those critical features. And then from that, and this was a big thing that Amy did, was we then developed examples and non-examples and said, okay, if we then created examples and non-examples based on this analysis, does it hold up to precision teaching as we know it? So we did this very elaborate process to, to do the best job that we could to represent this entire field.
0: That's awesome. And uh, sort of alluding to some of the, the, the examples, non-examples and the steps you went through to identify a definition there's a lot of tables in this paper. And so I recommend that the listeners check it out. I, th- I love the tables. I think they really simplify your message here. And so to the listeners out there, as you're kind of interested in, well, what were the previous definitions that were used and, and, and what were how, how do they break down all these examples, non-examples? A lot of great visuals with the tables in the paper. To look at the definition your team came to. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it. I'm going to quote you directly. Precision teaching is a system for precisely defining and continuously measuring dimensional features of behavior and analyzing behavioral data on the standard acceleration chart to make timely and effective database decisions to accelerate behavioral repertoires. Now, as you, uh, uh, Drew, for those who can't see, Drew gave me a a, a nice, uh, a passionate sign that was that was nice. Um, there's a lot going on in that definition, right? These aren't just arbitrary sort of. Well, we think this wording sounds nice. No, there's there's very specific meanings behind many of the critical pieces or all the critical pieces of this definition. And much of the paper is breaking down why you chose those specific pieces. And so if you don't mind, let's go through and sort of pick this definition apart and kind of explain where the idea or the rationale for each piece uh, came from. And so one of the pieces that jump out immediately within the definition is you specify that precision teaching is a system rather than a method or technology or process, etc. Can you explain that?
1: Yeah, so part of what makes it a system is that it's it's essentially a framework that can wrap around solving any problem or measuring any sort of behavior. So um, it, there's there's pieces to it that need to all be involved. So the measurement piece, The analysis piece all have to happen, have to kind of wrap around the behavior that's being observed and intervened on. So um, one thing that, again, one thing that I've seen out in, in in the wild, if you will, is people using one piece of that. Maybe they're presenting their data on the standard acceleration chart, but they didn't use the standard acceleration chart to make decisions when they were intervening. So the system of precision teaching is when all of those things are happening. So you're measuring behavior a certain way, you're collecting data and charting it within a certain amount of time. Essentially, those things are supposed to be very close in time. You're analyzing the data as immediately as possible you're making decisions based on those analyses. And then that, that continues to inform your intervention moving forward. So all of those things make up the system that kind of wraps around any specific intervention, any specific problem you're trying to solve, et cetera.
2: And one thing that I'll add there that I know we had a lot of discussion, me, Amy, and Andrew was that When you think of a process, you might think of it as the beginning and the end, and really precision teaching is nonlinear in a sense, and it's recursive. And we felt that a system really encompassed that recursive nature of, okay, I might make a decision, and okay, I see something, so I'm going to go back now, and I'm going to, to time the behavior again with a specific intervention and see what happens on the standard acceleration chart. So by referring to it as a system as well, we build in that na- that recursive nature that is so inherent in the inductive process of PT.
1: I'm so glad you said that. Because um, one of the things that we've seen is, you know, Rick Kubina has the, the PT process, pinpoint, record, change, try again. And that's really easy to remember. But it's also, it's one of those things where the pinpointing process doesn't end when you start measuring data. You can put something on a chart find out that you actually have to redefine how you're measuring or how you're defining behavior in order to get a better measure and get better data and make better decisions. So the process of actually pinpointing what you're even going to measure and intervene on, like that process can be a part of that system at any point, as opposed to being the first step out of however many steps you want to come up with. So I think it was really... It was a really interesting back and forth trying to figure out what's the right word for this. I've cert- I certainly borrowed that from Rick Kubina because we were giving presentations, he and I on what precision teaching is and how to, and he had certainly defined it as a system, and it just made so much sense to use that that term specifically.
0: Something that we've been talking around and and maybe we explicitly said it at some point so far. But just to be super clear, because I know this is a common source of confusion with precision teaching, when you're, so, when you're specifying system, you're not saying a system of instruction. You're not saying it's a specific instructional method. You're saying it's more what goes on around the instruction, how you're targeting behavior, how you're collecting the data, how you're analyzing it, et cetera can you talk about that confusion i'm sure in both of your lines of work the amount of work you do in precision teaching this is something you're constantly dealing with but can you can you talk to that point
1: that's that's precisely it it's a system of measurement and analysis and decision making so that can happen under any instructional methods or uh, with alongside any instructional methods so one of the things that's really familiar in precision teaching, because so many precision teachers do this, is fluency-based instruction. Um, Practicing in timings, running flashcards, counting how many you got right, putting it on the chart, setting a goal, those are all pieces of an intervention. And what people learn as the procedural aspects of precision teaching are all variables that can be tweaked or removed, played around with, except for that data analysis and measurement system So um, we we did we worked really hard to make sure we included all of those other instructional methods that can be um, evaluated using the precision teaching system.
2: And to add to that, what you'll tend to see is that people will use the term precision teaching as, well, this is what we do. This is the way that we teach. And it's like, well, that's the way that you measure. What are your instructional episodes looking like? So you'll see oftentimes um, in education that people will pair direct instruction, which our special issue shares a section with um, the DI special issue, but they'll pair direct instruction with precision teaching Um, because direct instruction specifies scoping sequence, it specifies how to teach, how to correct. Precision teaching allows you then to monitor performance and learning using that instructional design and instructional methodology? And then how do we make changes if learners aren't progressing in a way that we expect them to? And very similar to how Skinner could replicate cumulative records and look at the slopes of those and say, okay, this is this is the performance I'm expecting. And if he didn't get it, Skinner said, all right, let's go back and change variable. Same thing in precision teaching. What Og did was, okay, we're expecting to see this slope of performance and we're not. So we're not going to say there's something wrong with the child, right? We're going to say, what do we change? And that's what precision teaching allows us to
0: do. Thank you for that explanation. I think one of the next pieces that you talk about in the paper, that's a, a critical component of defining precision teaching is, is focusing on accelerating. And within the paper, you even kind of talked about you know, there's there a, maybe a little bit of debate about if accelerating should be the, the primary focus, because it's not as if you can't use standard acceleration charts to look at problem behaviors or behaviors that you want to decrease. But can you talk about why accelerating is a critical piece of this?
1: Yes. Um, this was a really important piece. And I think there's there's a couple of pieces to it. First of all, we just wanted it to make sense. And to me, if you're teaching something, then something's got to go up. That's where we learned about acceleration. That's where everything we know about learning has really come, at least in precision teaching, has really come from the process of accelerating skills. So I think that that part alone was enough to say, let's just make it about Making behavior go up. Um, Now, there's always an aspect of making some version of that go down, right? And anytime you're increasing the correct version of a behavior, you're putting some sort of um, judgment on whether it's correct or incorrect or whether it's what you want or don't want, then you're also going to have the the opposite of that, the incorrect version of that be something that you're also going to chart and you're going to monitor and see how that looks on the chart. But I think there's also, the other piece that's really important to me is there's kind of a cultural value. It, certainly in, in areas of behavior analysis, but especially in, in the precision teaching field that we see time and time again, that precision teachers were the ones to go in and look at a child or a learner who was struggling with some sort of behavior that would be deemed inappropriate, challenging, etc. cetera. And it was precision teachers who went in and said, let's teach these kids some skills. Let's see what they can do. Let's start where they're at. And so it's really a cultural value in precision teaching that no matter what, even if you do go in there and your job is to decelerate a behavior, you better be teaching something too. So um, that just felt like the right thing to put in there.
0: I love it. And I, and I loved your reference to the constructional approach to addressing problem behaviors, which is essentially another way of saying what you've already said, which is if you got a, a problem behavior going on, we can assume there's skill deficits there, right? How do you address that behavior? Well, you train appropriate replacement alternative skills that are going to prevent the need for that behavior to occur in the first place the next piece of your definition or another piece of your definition focuses on precise definitions and, and pinpoints specifically. Can you explain what pinpoints are and maybe explain how, how they might differ from what many behavior analysts would know as like an operational definition?
1: Okay, I'll, I'll get us started. And there may be something that Drew has to add here. Um, there is There's quite a bit of Differences in how people learn about pinpointing and what we define as a pinpoint. So we try to leave it as um, as broad as possible to talk about what a pinpoint is, because I, I come from a background where I'm very specific about what a pinpoint is. But there's a ton of precision teachers who use the term pinpoint to mean something a little bit looser. So I wanted to account. We wanted to account for that in if we're defining the field here, then we've gotta make sure we include whatever people are doing who we consider our our colleagues who are also implementing precision teaching. But in in the pinpointing process, um, and there is a process to creating a pinpoint, but a a completed pinpoint is one in which you're focusing on observable behavior, you are, generally we use different language. We use the language of a movement cycle and uh, so an action verb and the object of the action. And so rather than having these long definitions to, to describe what we've given a noun name to. So a common practice in, in ABA is let's Call this challenging behavior and then let's list a bunch of different topographies. A pinpoint rather goes into specify a topography that you're going to focus in on your measurement. So oftentimes a pinpoint is much more specific than what we what we might be used to measuring. But the uh, another big piece of the pinpoint that I think is most familiar to people who have played around, dabbled in precision teaching, is the learning channel. And using learning channels is liberating in so many ways. It's so cool. Um, but the the process of, of understanding a learning channel is what is what is the stimulus the organism the organism is coming into contact with and that's the input and so it sounds kind of mentalistic if you're talking about the input and the output as if it's some sort of processing system but it's a very descriptive way of looking at just exactly what's happening in front of you so we could have so we've got an input and then we've got what does the topography actually look like what does that behavior look like that's the output so using very I think in looking at the history of the pinpoint, ogden Lindsley had people just using verbs and it was like, let's just define things specifically with verbs. And that was a big part of that movement. And then they had to add some specificity and that's where the learning channels came into play. Eric Cotton's mostly um, credited for that, that discovery or that change.
2: Yeah. And I think the two things that I want to add to that is, well, I'll start with the, the learning channel matrix because that's where, where, Amy, you left it off. But that learning channel matrix that we, we referenced in the article, that was developed by Eric Houghton. And we you see some updates that we put on there. But that matrix was not supposed to be all encompassing of every behavior you can pinpoint. This matrix was originally designed for this uh, educational setting in which what are the common uh, behavioral responses that are frequently um, engaged in, in those settings. So you'll see a lot of mark and match and say and tap and things like that but in precision teaching if you're working let's say on teaching athletic abilities you might change that output to certain things that are related to the specific area that you're uh, coaching in so for example with soccer you might put kick right and it's like what kick oh, this is this a problem behavior no but it matches to the area that in which you're studying. So this is not a, a one size fits all matrix, this was designed for a specific purpose and setting with population, but precision teaching, precision teachers have the autonomy to to calibrate this matrix for the specific area in which they are teaching. And the second point, which I think is the, is the heart of this, is the process that Amy described for pinpointing and focus on observable verbs, actions, And in particular, the movement cycle, which specifies the beginning, middle, and end of a response. Why this is so important is that it helps us calibrate our measurement. So when I'm watching something, I'm measuring the same behavior that Amy is. Because if I say reads, that's a verb. But what if I'm measuring reads words and Amy's measuring reads sentences, our frequencies are going to be very off on our chart, and we're gonna see that. So by specifying those movement cycles within, we're able to calibrate our measurement, which then allows for that sensitivity, that frequency in the standard acceleration chart allows
1: for. You can have variation in the learning channel for something like reads. So again, a common verb that we use, a learning channel that we're familiar with is see, say. You see it and you read it aloud, but you can also see, you can also um, touch Feeling the words in Braille and then saying the output. So the fact that those learning channels can change within the same verb is a reason why we have the whole process of pinpointing with the movement cycle first and then adding on that learning channel.
0: I really found the the breakdown of the movement cycle, the so learning channels, the context statements, etc. Within the paper to be very very helpful in. In something that I don't think is necessarily mutually exclusive or completely different than some of the ways that people use operational definitions, but certainly an extremely helpful tool in, in, in pinpointing or, or identifying specifically narrowed in behaviors that you're looking at. So that was really helpful. The next piece of the definition looked at continuous observation and how critical continuous observation is for, for precision teaching. Can you talk about that?
1: Okay. So when we talk about continuous observation, I think this term can be kind of tricky, but part of what's so meaningful is we were talking about counting a pinpoint, right? And we count behaviors in real time over the course of a set amount of time. So what's different about or what's, what's specific about precision teaching is that it really only works um, when measuring continuous, when measuring with continuous observation in, in contrast to um, time sampling procedures where you might be discontinuous, using discontinuous measurement for whatever reason that doesn't quite work with the, the concept or the process of measuring behavior in time. So because of the way the chart's designed, because of the way that measurement occurs under those conditions, it makes a lot more sense to use continuous observation. Um, and I do get that question, can we put discontinuous measurement on the chart? And it's um, one of those things where yes, you could, but it wouldn't really make sense. It wouldn't be accurate. So that's it's, it just works better to use continuous observation.
2: And to add on to that um, is that continuous observation allows the learner to engage in as many responses as they're able to. And in precision teaching, you'll hear us talk about ceilings a lot, but when you use discontinuous measurement procedures and discontinuous um, observational periods, you put on a ceiling to what you're actually observing, which takes away a natural aspect of behavior. So if I only observe the behavior 10 times in a 10 minute observation period, well, I have a ceiling that I can't get above that the behavior happened more than once once per minute. And that's not what we're seeing, right? That's not necessarily what's occurring is what I should say. So by focusing on that continuous observation, we're sticking to a natural way in which behavior occurs across time.
0: I think this piece is very much so connected to the, the next piece of the definition which is the dimensional measurement and the the preference for frequency in precision teaching. You talk about why why precision teachers often see frequency as being the superior measure.
2: So I'd be happy to start on this. And then, Amy, I would love if you could add on some of the things that you discussed, even at the last Interstellaration Society presentation that you gave. It was remarkable. But... For behavior to occur, behavior is a natural thing. And there are natural measures of behavior, right? Behavior has uh, repeatability, it can be repeated. Temporal locus, at what point in time does it happen in in the environment in regards to other events? And then temporal extent, how long does it occur for? Now, those are natural measures of behavior. So we call them dimensional measures of behavior because they are built in. Every behavior has those things. So they have latency, duration, frequency. There's a magnitude of behavior. Now, in precision teaching, we focus on those dimensional measures because that's how our science was founded. Uh, Behavior analysis in 1938, Skinner's um, behavior of organism, you'll see frequency as the measure that he used to validate many of the principles that we know today, because that's a natural measure of behavior. It's sensitive to environmental changes, and it's built in. When we get to dimensionless measures, that's when we remove the natural phenomena or the natural things that come with behavior, and we start looking at statistics about behavior. So a percent is not a measure of behavior, it's a statistic that's meant to represent behavior. So we move out from that natural approach of measurement to this very estimated estimation type approach to look at statistical measures about behavior because 100% does not tell me enough information about the performance. Um, Take for example, that Cody, you answered 10 questions in one minute and it took Amy an hour to answer those 10 questions. Although you were both 100%, there's a difference in that performance. And with an example like that, it may appear a little arbitrary, right? Well, she eventually got to it, but when we're working with clients, and we say that the client was 100% successful at putting on or getting dressed in the morning. But if it takes them, let's say, an hour to do that, the likelihood that the client may receive punishment, the client may receive unnecessary prompts to get them dressed in time increases because those performances are very different. And if you look at some of the work of B. Barrett in her human operant laboratory, you see that behaviors can look 100%, but vary in frequencies across different learners. And that's very important to note uh, within this entire phenomenon. And when we look at percent as a measure, I'm getting kind of like heated now with this. We look at percent as a measure. Every time I do a training on precision teaching and the importance of frequency, I engage in an activity and I challenge you all to do this that's listening. Um, But I I have participated. Usually, they're BCBA's, SLPs, students, etc. Engage in a 30-second timing, and I say, "List out. I want you to write no- the numerals zero through nine as many times as you can." And they do. All right. What's your frequency? 57 correct in 30 seconds. Okay. 62 correct in 30 seconds. Excellent. Beautiful. Cool. So they're all 100%. Say, all right. Switch to your non-dominant hand. And they all switch and they're all groaning and moaning. And I'm like, oh I see a lot of noncompliance. We're going to lose recess time. Oh, you get out of my class. You're being noncompliant. So then they switch. And I say, don't sacrifice accuracy, though. Form the numbers, but don't sacrifice accuracy. So you dip in frequencies, but usually the percent remains the same. And I said, all right, great. You hit 100%. You met your IEP goal. You're done working on this. <laughs> You're done, right? And that's what we do with our learners when we use percent and dimensionless is we remove those aspects. So I say, you're done. We're not going to work on this goal anymore. Now I want you to solve complex math problems or take down my phone number with your non-dominant hand. And it's difficult for them, right? And they don't use it. They ask to use what they're good at. So those are just some examples of the the importance of frequency because it's a fundamental property of behavior. And when you get away from that, you're no longer taking a natural approach of measurement. You're using statistical representations about what behavior is doing uh, in that environment.
0: Uh, I'm with you on that. And I, and I love your exercise that you have people do. I think that that is a great way of demonstrating that issue. That being said, I I think that some of the issue that people run into is if they have a restricted operant, right? So there's going to be a a capped number of opportunities for this response to occur. We're only doing so many transitions in a day. We're looking at transitioning or so many math problems in a day. How can you or how do you control for potentially a, a fluctuating number of restricted or of opportunities essentially?
1: So there's a couple ways to handle that, and I love that question because it gets into kind of the depth of well, how do we actually make this work in in this other other realm of managing behavior and, and teaching? And there's a couple ways to handle that. The first is to just not control for it. Just do what you can get done in a day, and look at those as as measures that you can compare and you can still make sense of what you did and what happened. So if there were three opportunities, you got two out of three opportunities yesterday, you got five out of seven today, those measures are more accurate or they're more specific than just looking at percentages. So what people do is to control for that. They, get, they essentially take the raw data, which you always have, they take those data and convert it to a percentage to get something uniform. But those things aren't uniform. And we're behavior analysts. So we want to look at the behavior that actually occurred or didn't occur. So even knowing, even just changing your language from eight out of 10 yesterday, four out of five today, that gives me much more information than seeing 80%, 80%. See how I can still I can still more or less think in percentages, but I have access to that information.
2: And to add on that, so that's an excellent way. And I actually just read an article by Og that was saying that, that was saying, don't do percentages; just say the, the actual numbers. It's more meaningful. But and this is beyond the scope of this podcast. There are a very elaborate ways that we can then chart those data as well, which gets into, we don't have to operate on fixed timings all the time. We can do these variable times measures where we do a count up procedure and we might analyze our record floors and say, okay, are the record floors or our measure of how long the observation period is, are they um, decreasing in length? Are they increasing in length? And have that be its own dependent variable. When you're looking at things like single opportunities to respond, such as transitions, then you might look at latency measures or duration measures. And then you can what you can do is stack them and see the variability or what we refer to as bounce on the chart in the same day. So I can see that there are several uh, seven marks on Monday, and I can see the highest and the the lowest mark and say, okay, how much bounce was there in between how long it took and then how many opportunities there were. And I can still make decisions, but those are pretty elaborate ways that learners that are just reading about the chart may not think about or may not do on their own without some supervision. Um, So there are these additional ways to look at those sorts of things.
1: And one of the things, um, to add to that, one of the things that we're talking about with, and I'm, I'm learning a lot from Liz Lefebvre, my business partner on this, because she works in the realm of autism intervention and that I've, I've been had that opportunity to kind of see how some of these questions come up. But one of the things to think about is the number of opportunities that you're giving a learner to engage in a response per day is one of your variables and so that's something that you can control if in cases where you can control it if you're running like a discrete trial type of program so if maybe you're seeing a certain a certain level of progress when you're giving 10 opportunities per day then changing that to 20 opportunities per day might be the next step but you can control for that within each phase of instruction. And so that's one of the things that we recommend is sometimes it's just, you know, as a precision teacher, I'm used to, I run a one minute timing and that kid's getting a hundred opportunities in one minute. So it, it blows my mind to think about how do we do that with something that we have to move a little bit slower for, for whatever reason. So under those conditions, it's really useful to think of, to just keep in, keep in mind that the number of opportunities is one of your one of the elements, one of the components of your intervention package that can be controlled or manipulated, um, and that can also help your data be more uh, easy to interpret.
0: I love that uh, for so many reasons. For starters, I love that you're bringing up the fact that we control the number of of learning opportunities in, in many learning contexts. And I like that point because I think a lot of people arbitrarily select how many learning opportunities are going to be presented to to students, and and, and even the the how how long breaks are, things like that. They're just they just kind of cram them where they think they can, um, which I don't think is probably a very wise way of going about giving people learning opportunities and and training them in skills. And I think if you look at like animal trainers, animal trainers typically know exactly how many trials are going to get in with, with the animals per day, because there tends to be caps on how many uh, learning opportunities are going to actually be effective and, and, and the animal's going to respond well to. I certainly have different caps myself personally than many of my friends. Like some people I know can just sit down and read and do things for, Hours straight, and, and I might need some breaks in there, right? And so I, I, I have to imagine, I haven't looked at research on this, but I have to imagine our learners are no different than that. Our students are no different than that. So uh, great points there. The next piece of the definition is, is specifying the use of the standard celebration chart, which we talked about earlier as being an absolutely critical feature of precision teaching. But I don't know that we explicitly said why specifically the standard acceleration chart is an absolutely critical component. Like, what does the standard acceleration chart do or offer that other graphing systems do not?
1: Well, I want to start off by saying that sometimes precision teachers aren't very good at talking about why we love the chart so much, because it's such an an extension. It's just a part of what we do. And there's no way for me to actually tell you how much of what I can accomplish with my learners is only because of the chart. But I know that I can't do my job without it. So I think once people get really fluent and they're in this field and they use this this whole system, then determining exactly why the chart is so important from a clinician's perspective or from a practitioner perspective, it's just kind of hard to tease those things apart because it's such a part of what we do and how we think. And there's some things um, that I find really interesting. Like once you've used the chart enough, you can almost, you can visualize it in real time without it actually charting sometimes. And it's like, I just know where that's gonna fall on the chart and that's giving me information whether I've actually dropped the dot or not. And I don't know how to explain that to anybody else, but it's really just such a part of what we do. But when it comes down to the specifics of what is the chart all about? There's a few things, and again, I'm kind of borrowing this from Rick Kubina talks about this so much in all of his presentations and all of his research. So there's a ton there. If, if you all want to read more about it, he usually does a great job with that. But the standard acceleration chart is standardized first and foremost. And I find that to be just so super critical. Once you learn, it is a bit of a bear to learn how to use the chart. But once you learn how to use the chart um you look at one chart and you can look at somebody's chart who's who's you've never met the learner you don't know the practitioners um all you're looking at is this one piece of paper and you can see more or less you can see so much about you can understand the behavior understand how it's going um, what they've tried all of these things and it's more than just a graph because it's so standardized The the vertical and horizontal axes are standardized. So those slopes are standard. So I know the difference between really accelerated learning versus just okay learning versus totally unacceptable, moving way too slow. Whereas on any other graphical display, those changes might just be a function of having different axes or, you know, having some some variations in how the data are actually graphed. So unfortunately, so many of the graphing products that we all use, including the stuff that comes standard on our computers, does that. (laughs) Um, And even... Even if you do your best to control for those things, the standard acceleration chart was designed to have all of those things in place. So once you learn how kind of I was telling you how I just kind of can feel where something might be on the chart, it's because I've looked at the same chart over across so many hundreds of behaviors and learners and staff people and I can see that there's some similarities or some differences between certain behaviors. And there's generally a rate at which some, some behaviors occur and I can kind of feel where it is on the chart because that chart is standardized. So I, every time I see a chart, I'm seeing the same thing.
2: I was just gonna add to that one of the things that I find really important is the ratio scale um, for a variety of ways. So you'll hear the term semi-logarithmic. I like to say ratio or multiply divide because that tends to stick a little bit easier with folks um and this was discovered as we kind of talked about an abigail section that she wrote in the intro to the special issue that this was discovered by using the tool this is an empirically derived chart in which you'll see that it was used to be referred to as the dg five and six version because it was a daily graph and they were looking at at you know, graphical displays of absolute measures and then discovered that behavior grows very naturally like in other natural sciences, right? When a sperm meets an egg, starts out as one cell and goes from one to two, and it doesn't go to two to three, it goes from two to four and then four to eight and it multiplies. And the same phenomenon happens in a natural science approach to behavior. We see that behaviors that are just emerging, those first few responses are very meaningful. And we see that when a baby takes their first step to their second step, we're praising. We're like, I love you, baby. Like, you're amazing. You're walking. Right. But when the baby's at 500 steps and they take their 500 first, uh, 501 step, it's like, well, did I really even notice it? I'm not celebrating that, that additive plus one. So I know this from learning Spanish myself. I feel I I always challenge people to try to feel what it's like to be a learner engaging in something for the first time. Learning Spanish, my first few words, it, it was meaningful to get from five to 10. And then now that I'm at the level of speaking Spanish that I'm at, I don't even notice when I add in a new word. So the difference between a thousand words in my vocabulary to a thousand five, I'm not noticing it because they're different performances. So that ratio or multiply divide scale on the y-axis allows us to see those meaningful changes within behavior because behaviors occurring at different frequencies look and feel differently. And progress at different levels or ranges of frequencies should be celebrated differently. I don't know if you have anything else you wanna add to that, Amy.
1: So we hit two out of the three features of the standard acceleration chart that are so valuable. We hit standardization and we hit the proportional scale. And the third one is this access to quantification that we have on the standard acceleration chart. So because of those other features, we have the ability to essentially describe behavior change in terms of level trend and variability, but we can quantify them in real time. So on the SCC, you can describe a trend in terms of a times two acceleration means it's going up. That's the times part. And then the two says specifically by how much. So it's times two means on a daily chart, if you've got a times two, then it's doubling week over week. So from from one the beginning of one week to the end of one week, you've doubled behavior. And so we know what that looks like on a chart. And so we also have access to not only quantify it, but also see that quantification and kind of memorize that slope and then know that that's a times two. So I think that's really cool that it goes both ways. So we can do that with accelerations we also can do that with, with our variability, which we call bounce. We can also do that with our level analysis. So all of that can be quantified in real time using the SCC. And so those are the three features that I try to um, emphasize when talking to people about the beauty of the standard acceleration chart compared to other graphs.
0: I love it. I love that it is trying to minimize some of the arbitrariness in, in a lot of these decisions. We'll have another episode coming out later this season with Rick Cabina, and he and I speak about some of the fuzziness or some of the consistent errors if people are having to, to make individual judgments about things. If I have to look at a graph and I have to determine what the the rate of change is without specific criteria, uh, looking at the exact slope difference, there's going to be room for individual difference in interpretation, which is another way of saying there's going to be room for error. And, and I love that. I also loved sort of Drew's point about the, the base number affects how we see a difference in, in numbers. And so if you have a 1000 Spanish words in your vocabulary, adding one or two, not a big deal. I because I primarily focus on decreasing problem behavior. I often like to ask my students if you have a student who engages, uh, engages in uh, self injurious behavior in the form of hitting themselves in the head, and you're able to decrease that behavior by five instances a day, is that clinically significant? Is that important? Well, the answer is it depends on what the base rate is, right? If, if they're hitting themselves 500, 600 times in the day, and you decrease it by five instances, uh, that's not doing it, right? That's not meaningful enough. You've got to continue to work on finding more effective interventions. If the, if the base rate is five instances a day or six instances a day, well, yeah, that's that's pretty meaningful, right? And so we've got to look at those things. And, and it sounds like the standard acceleration chart really helps um, with those components. The last piece of the definition, last critical piece of the definition is the timely and effective database decisions. Can you explain what that means?
1: I feel like it's easier to explain this one with the non-examples. It's if this isn't in place, if you don't have timely and effective database decisions, then you might be using the chart or you might be charting your data, but not looking at your charts regularly. So a really quintessential precision teaching chart has tons and tons of phase change lines. It's very rare to just see a set it and forget it type of chart because what we do and what this whole system is designed to support us in doing is look at behavior, measure it as frequently as possible, and then make changes as soon as you you have any indication that a change needs to be made. So um, again, we see a lot of instances of people collecting data and maybe kind of some, some things that happen when you've got these big measurement systems where multiple people, is kind of moving from multiple people throughout an organization. A lot of times what you see is there's one person collecting data, then there's another person taking that data at some point and put, you know, compiling it. And then another person even that might end up putting it on a graph. And then maybe even another person who's going to analyze the data say, let's make a change. And then, you know, it goes around in this crazy circle where it could be weeks or months before changes are made. And the, the precision teaching system is just designed to, to enable that to happen faster.
2: And I would say to add on to that is that every single dot that we put on the chart, we're making a decision. And there was one workshop I gave, I remember when someone said, well, don't you need three data points to get a trend? Or don't you need X amount of data points to get a trend? Said, we're not talking about acceleration right now. We're talking about making a decision. And if I drop a dot, my decision is I'm gonna keep doing what I'm doing tomorrow. All right, what I did today is what I'm gonna do tomorrow. I'm still making a decision because I put the data point on there. I dropped my dot and I, and I, I looked at it and said, okay, I'm not gonna change a thing. I'm gonna do another timing the way that I did tomorrow, but I'm still making a decision. Um, And that's why I like the the chart so much. And there's a a quote that my colleague Deb Brown always says, and it kind of ties in the SEC part with decision-making is that a graph tells you where you were and where you currently are, where a chart is just like you're charting a course on the ocean, it allows you to see where you're going. So by looking at those dots, I can see where I'm going and I can make a change so that that learner isn't being affected by my lack of of oversight on their their progress. And I truly believe that that's what it means to to leave no child behind is we don't allow them to fail. (laughs) We look at their charts and we can see, oh, something's going on with Amy's data. So I need to do something. And that opens up all the techniques and interventions that have been discovered because of precision teaching, right? Do I need to do a component composite analysis? Do I need to endurance shaping. Do I need to um, make some kind of stimulus prompts, change the physical arrangement? All of those things I can then put in place. And because we're using frequency, I see my dots change. And this is the point where this is recursive, right? So then we're going back and we might select another point, like Amy said. And I try that out. And I see there's no movement on the behavior because I selected that. Well, I made a mistake. I selected the wrong behavior target. Let me target another one because of this analysis that I did. So it really gets into this inductive approach for what works for the child. Because what works for you, Cody, is, may not work for Amy, and it definitely won't work for me, because I'm going to say in the oddball here, that means all sorts of you know, some supports for me. Um, but that's the beauty of this system.
0: I love it. And I hope that the behavior analysts who are listening, who may not be ready to jump right onto the precision teaching bandwagon at least take a lot of the important components of of these pieces of precision teaching that you're talking about. I have been aghast multiple times when when going to different clinics, seeing people collecting trial by trial data, which is great. And when I go, okay, like when are you graphing that and analyzing that data, they say, you know, quarterly or before the next IEP. And it's like, well, <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, behavior analysis fundamentally is a data-based field making decisions every three months based on data is not cutting it right you've got to be looking at that immediately precision teaching that's embedded and that's a that's a that's a piece that you have to do and standard acceleration chart and everything else you do make that uh, easy and, and a required piece in my opinion i think it should and can be required within behavior analysis but i think that gets lost in translation sometimes so a lot of incredibly uh, important pieces within all of this definition, but then, you know, that's even losing the forest of the trees and saying, hey, this is a great way of defining this and incredibly helpful in, in, in building an understanding toward precision teaching. So thank you for that. The next part of your article focuses on some of the variable features of precision teaching, and we're running low on time. I want to be respectful of everyone's time. So If you wouldn't mind just maybe describing what you mean by variable features, and then, and I I hate to do this to you, but if you could just maybe cherry pick a few of your favorite examples of the variable features and and, and focus on those.
2: So I'll just start off with an overview of what variable features are in the instructional design um, realm, but I want you to think of variable features as features that occur within instances of a concept, but do not define what is or is not the concept. So Joe Lang refers to them as can have features that they can be a part of the concept or they can be a part of precision teaching, but they don't define what precision teaching is or is not. And I feel like this may be one of our more controversial sections um, based on the way that we analyze these. Because as you saw in some of the original definitions, self-monitored daily performance was part of some of those original definitions. And we stated that, self-monitoring is a variable feature. And whoever is monitoring and charting the data is variable given the, the realm of which precision teaching lives in the applied field. Um, so that's just kind of an overview of what variable features are. Uh, Amy, I would be curious to hear what some of your favorites that you're gonna pick from, cause I need to think about mine. <laughs>
1: Oh my gosh. Well, when we started this, I had done a couple workshops and a few presentations kind of with this idea in mind, like let's do a concept analysis. Let's tell, tell people what it is and isn't. And then, you know, see if people can then define e- examples and non-examples of precision teaching. So I kind of played around with that. And I think it's, this goes way back to like 2016. I was trying some things out, but um actually sitting down with, Drew and our our other author Andrew Kita, and just hammering these out was the funnest part of this. I think, um, because we did have to really make sure, well, Oh, what if people say this, we had to start by figuring out what are the things that people might be doing or not doing? And how do we include that in this article? So this was uh, definitely a team effort. There were a few that I definitely had in mind already, which were the dimensional quality. So even though we love frequency, you can still, if as long as you're measuring a dimension of behavior, frequency, latency, duration, and a response time, those all fit those features that we talked about when we talked about dimensional qualities earlier. Um, the data collector was the one that Drew mentioned. Um, I think one of the ones that came up as I was teaching people about precision teaching was this measurement recurrence idea that, I'm really good at measuring behavior several times in a session every single day and then showing you what it looks like over the course of a week, but not every, not every clinician has that access to their learners so people ask that question. Well, what if I only get 20 minutes a week with my students? It's like, well, your charts aren't going to look like mine, but it doesn't mean you can't do precision teaching. So I wanted to make sure we included that one so that we could bring more people in and kind of make it possible for other people to say what they're doing is PT.
2: And I think that some of my more profound discoveries that um, are part of this, and I'm a big nerd because it's kind of where my research is, is looking at conceptually, is the degree of restriction and the paradigms in which we teach and assess. Um, and part of that is, you know, I, I view this, this all behavior on a continuum of purely free operant and purely restricted operant, which neither, I'm going to say, I don't think neither really exists, but I think everything falls within that scale. And you can take something that's more restricted, like imitation, where I can only imitate based on the frequency in which models are provided to me, but I can still chart that. So it may not be timings in a sense of there's a 200 stimuli on a sheet and I'm I'm going through and reading as many as I can. That's freer, still restricted because there are just a series of SDs, right? But it's freer, but we can still analyze data on this whole realm of um, restriction. And that's something that I've been playing around with, with the wolf training that I've been doing in which we do have some restrictions on the behaviors and, you know, the wolves are with, withdrawing their ascent at times and we're honoring that so we can get really creative with the way that we're measuring this playing So I think that the degree of restriction is one of my favorites. And I think the second one would be the decision maker. And I love that our very first one of decision makers, is the performer or the learner themselves, because that is deep within precision teaching in which learners will look at their own charts. They'll, they'll chart their own data. They'll look at their charts and they'll say, I need an intervention or I want to do this or I'm not doing well because I think this is the reason, let's try it. And that autonomy in learning is something that is so rare in our educational system in which we're telling students what they need to do. We're telling students what they need to learn. We're saying, this is what needs to happen. But to give students autonomy over their own learning is a built-in natural reinforcer. So we talk about all these motivating variables and it's like, shoot, you want to get a kid motivated, you bring them into their learning from day one. And I have this, I I stress this with many clients that I work with in special education settings and general education settings and clinic based. I'm like, show your learners their dots, show them what's going on, ask them what's up. And it's like, what? We can do that it's like yeah it's the kids learning like let them be a decision maker in their own learning so i think that's my my one of my favorite uh, variable features that we highlighted is that there's many decision makers in there but it's so amazing when the learners are their own decision makers it's just magical
0: that's awesome i, I love the focus on the the learner um driven sort of uh opportunities
1: And I think we have to highlight the type of intervention piece, just going back to kind of how we started this conversation, is that the type of intervention is one of the variable features. So we put in there, we added an other field because the list can go on forever, but we said frequency building could be one of the interventions that you're using. Frequency building to a Performance criterion, um, stimulus fading, endurance shaping—we just kind of came up with a few, but really any intervention um, could be used, and you could still call it precision teaching as long as those critical features are in place.
0: The last part of your paper provides sort of a detailed step-by-step guide of, of doing precision teaching in a table, and then you also provide uh, what you call a synthesized step uh, step system for for doing precision teaching. Could you briefly run through the, the steps of that? And earlier in the interview, we talked about these are kind of presented linearly, but it's not so much a linear process. Could you could you talk about that?
1: Yeah, I think what we wanted to do with this one was take, um, take that that process that sometimes sounds linear that we talked about earlier, one of one of those is the PRCTA cycle of pinpoint record change. Try again is one of the most popular that came out. It's in Rick Covina and Kirsten Uric's um, The Precision Teaching book. So that process for implementing precision teaching has been a really um, a really good one as a, as our starting point, but we had to add a few extra steps. I'll let Drew cover that piece.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you'll see that our steps aren't too vastly different than the list that we provided, right? Pinpointing, hugely important right? The big thing that we added was arranging for your instruction or practice. So that's that's making those considerations of how I'm going to measure the behavior, what ceilings may be in effect, what are the materials that I need to design to get high levels of uh, performance or high frequencies of performance? How do I vary those things? What paradigm am I teaching in? Um, and we wanted to include this because Uh, we saw that we do so much upfront work before we pinpoint in time a behavior, that there is this design and selection aspect of it and arranging those things. Um, So we like to add in that and talk about how one might go about practicing um, within precision teaching and how do you measure within the instructional phase of learning as well as the practice phase of learning. But then we have charting is the next step, right? That's tried and true. We say we chart and we added time the performance measure and chart it under that one category of charting. We have decide in there, which we talked about making those timely decisions that after you time the behavior, you chart it on the standard acceleration chart, you look at that dot and you make a decision. And then the last one is try, try again which goes into our inductive process of we're never giving up on the learner. So is it that I'm trying again the same way? Is it that this learner is not growing the way that we know that they can and they know that they can? So what are we doing? What are, what's our analysis? And we take this very inductive process of seeing what the data tell us and rather than formulating a hypothesis in the beginning, we see, okay, what's happening here okay, let me try something. What do I see now? And then I extrapolate these findings from that type of approach. So that try, try again highlights to that recursive process of, it's not, okay, I timed it, I charted it and that's it. They made it. It's I'm going back. And I might go back to, let's say I might go back to the charting step where I'm like, you know, I see that a one minute timing towards the last 25 seconds, the learner slows down. So I'm going to change the way in which I'm charting. I'm going to do a 30 second timing instead of a minute. I see that I build frequencies there, drop it to a minute, all is good. Cool. So I might go to that step. Or I might go back to the arrange the instruction or practice step and see that I offer too little opportunities for them to respond. So they're hitting a ceiling because I only offer them 25 opportunities to respond and they can't get any higher. So I change the way that that's doing it. Or I might go back to um, the pinpoint, right? The pinpoint. I say, did I select the right behavior to work on? Right? Is there an underlying component skill? Um, and we're not going to talk about component skills, but I want you to think of it as, as like an ingredient of a, a bigger picture. So, did I select the right ingredient to to bake this cake? Or did I put you know too much, you know I put in. Uh, Applesauce and that was the wrong ingredient. I'm sure the cake still looks pretty good, but I need to make sure that I add in some oil, right? Component skills are like that. If we're trying to get growth, components are ingredients. Did I put the did I select the right ingredient to get this delicious, beautiful skill to occur? Or do I need to go back and select a different pinpoint? So this these steps are these recursive things that Once you're doing this, you're dancing through these steps. And it's a happy dance. I love the dance because it really feels like I'm being a scientist practitioner in the best way.
0: I love it. Uh, I keep saying love it, but I'm just uh, getting so much good information from this interview. Uh, It's incredibly informative. You guys have been a a wealth of of information. I've learned a lot uh, through this process. There's so many little asides that I wish we could have gone down. My students would be proud of me for not going on a million different tangents and asking you guys a million different questions. That, that, was, that required some discipline on my part because so much interesting information presented here. This, this article is a great resource. I encourage the listeners to check it out. For people interested in learning more about precision teaching, aside from reading the special issue that came out in the journal Behavior Analysis and Practice, do either of you have recommendations on on where they should get started?
2: So we're gonna disclose right from the, the get-go that there are there may be some conflicts of interest with these statements because we're invested within the community. So I'm I'm a board member for the Standard Acceleration Society, but I also wanna promote the Standard Acceleration Society in our events because that is really the organization. Um, that is the 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 mecca of all things charting so that's a really great way to get involved early on Uh, in terms of social media groups as well we have the Facebook group that's that's buzzing and lively filled with discussions Um, in terms of readings there's there's a variety of readings there's books we wrote a lot of books Uh, there's a whole discussion about why we wrote books instead of articles there's these articles that are coming out but I want to stress that if you really want to do these things, the most meaningful aspect of my training has been the mentorship that I received. And find yourself a good mentor, because you'll see that there are so many kind people within our field that are so excited to pass along this science to help all different types of learners. And if you're really interested in doing this and doing this well, then find someone to work with to teach you, to guide you in a very kind and soft way into how you can begin incorporating these things within your practice. Um, But I know Amy has a whole lot more to share on very good ways to get involved immediately and how to secure mentorship.
1: Yeah, so also probably disclosing that there are some interests here, but um, that is my sole existence in this world these days. So I'm very pleased to, <laughs> to be the person to bring people in. Um, so my organization, Octave Innovation, I co-own with Liz LaFeber, and we have both train people from day one. We have a very extensive how to use the chart program and we walk people through from wherever they're at to where they need to be. So there are a ton of opportunities I I would recommend, um, again, just getting in touch with anybody in the precision teaching field. There are a ton of people who are willing to really be a part of this. It's very difficult, I find, for people to learn how to do this while they're working for an organization that doesn't support the chart. And that can be just so hard to do. So find your people. Um, If you want to really dig into this, um, it's something that I had to do with my career, I moved all over the universe to work with different precision teachers. So for eight years, I just lived in a bunch of different places so that I could work with people and learn. Um, And that is often what has to happen. But in these days that we're so connected online, there's lots of opportunities to just reach out to the people, ask questions. um, And I'm gonna do my best to continue to provide programs, workshops, etc. Um, so feel free to reach out to me and I can get you started with whatever you need.
0: <laughs> Thank you for that. We'll link to your do you have like a website or email that you prefer people reach out to you on?
1: Yeah, um our website is octavetraining.com. There's a way to contact me right there from the website.
0: Awesome. We'll link to that in the show notes. Again, thank you both so much for your time and help today. This has been uh, really interesting for me, really helpful for me personally. And I think the listeners are going to really appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much for inviting us and allowing our voices and the voices of so many of our mentors that are have been passed through to us uh, to shine today. So I
1: appreciate that. Thank you. This was really fun. And I do love just kind of chatting with Drew and getting to um, share that, that fun nerdiness with the rest of the world. So thanks for that opportunity.
0: Before you go too far, please remember to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use to listen. Also find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and to suggest recent bat papers that we should review. Links to our social media are in our show notes. Finally, I'd like to thank people who helped make this podcast. Thank you to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of the journal Behavior Analysis and Practice. Thank you to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. Special thanks to my assistant producers, Elizabeth Nervaez and Jesse Perrin, and to my production assistant for this episode, Jacob Oliveira. As always... Thank you to Jim Carr and his band New Latitude for letting us sample their song Cruising Altitude throughout this podcast.